Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome. I am Diana Kander, and this is Professional AF. Now, today's a pretty unique episode. As you know, this season is dedicated to the concept of failing better. And half the episodes are going to be with experts and thought leaders and authors. And the other half are these after-action reviews with people at the front lines of big public things that didn't exactly work out. So the first one is with Steve Sasson, who at the age of 25 invented the first digital camera at Kodak. You cannot read a top 10 list of biggest business mistakes without seeing Kodak's unwillingness to market the digital camera that Steve invented. But the actual story is so much better than whatever you think you know about this story. You're going to learn that the bigger failure wasn't in 1978 when Steve first invented the camera, that it actually came Much, much later, when they were on the precipice of having a marketable camera that they could have sold right then. It's an incredible story. Steve and I are going to talk about what he did wrong when he presented the idea to management, why he couldn't convince people inside the company, what he did correctly, that he would recommend that you repeat, and the real story of what Kodak missed out on in 1989. And Steve also shares that he worked in a different department later in his career and invented this photocopier, which uh, became huge, but almost, almost, almost met the same fate as the digital camera. And finally, Steve's going to give advice to innovators pitching, trying to disrupt their existing successful companies. Before we get to the show, I'd love for you to take a second to subscribe and review the show. It means so much to me whenever you take a moment to do that. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve Sasson. Okay, well, failure is the topic. I'm I'm an expert at that. So uh, (laughs) I'm well qualified to talk about that. Well, I'm excited to chat about it. And a little bit of history between me and you, Steve, is I used to teach an MBA course at Mizzou. It was called Corporate Innovation. And we would start every semester with, I had a slide of all these companies that used to be like, you know, dominant in their field and then peaked and, and became less relevant. And I would have my students use LinkedIn to find people who worked at those companies and talk to them about what happened. And one of my students actually found you. That's how I first learned of you. And he told us about his conversation with you. And I've, for the last five years, ever since that happened, wanted to have this conversation. So I'm so oh. excited you said oh, yes. Okay. Well, I'm glad I had a chance to talk with him. I- <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for saying yes. And uh. um, not to sound too much like Chris Farley, but... Steve, do you remember that one time when you invented the digital camera? That was awesome. 
I do remember Chris Farley with that line. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, my, my student who had talked to you, you know, he painted this picture of you walking into a boardroom presentation and you started with something like, I present to you the first filmless camera. Is that what happened? <laughs> and they were like, well, ah, maybe well, not. This was um, this was back in 1976. Um, I, I I had a chance to to build this prototype photographic system, and um, I didn't expect anybody to be terribly interested in it. Um, however, I was working at Eastman Kodak Company, and so when the system was complete, I uh, I talked to my supervisor and told him I could take pictures of people. And so he set up a series of meetings and uh, the meetings were typical corporate meetings, as you would imagine, you know, first you met with all of the people that were um, his peers in different departments. And then his bosses came and then they invited their peers. And so we went up the corporate ladder throughout the 1976 year. So I had a chance to present my system several times. And where that filmless filmless uh, title came from, I had to entitle the meeting. I had to send out meeting notice. They told me who to send it to. And um, so I, I called it filmless photography, which was a poor choice of titles, uh, given the audience. Um, but uh, uh, it was basically a demonstration of this, uh, what, what I called electronic still camera. Um, which is a digital camera. The system was completely digital, uh, which even made it seem a little bit more remote and esoteric um, because I was proposing this as a consumer replacement for film-based photography. And I said so, uh, naive as I was. Um, and so you can imagine uh, with a series of Kodak managers that I was challenged quite a bit with respect to this idea of and um, and I really wasn't prepared for it. Uh, I thought uh, since I had spent the last year or so uh, cleverly combining all of these different technologies that were never meant to work together, let alone in this application, uh, and put them together in this little portable device uh, to take pictures, I thought everybody would love to know how I did what I did. <laughs> and uh, so I was prepared to explain all how this thing worked and how we got all this to work and Nobody asked me how. They asked me why. And I was not ready for that question. They asked me, why would anybody want to take their pictures with such a device? Why would anybody want to look at their pictures on a television set? What exactly is wrong with film-based photography that you have such a problem with? And, uh, you know, when you're at the cutting edge of something like this, um, you don't have a lot of data to support your contention or your belief or your view of the future. And so what I had to use was a lot of analogies. And um, I remember being forced to say, what, what is this going to look like if it ever became a real consumer product? And I said, think of it as a calculator with a lens. And um, I thought that would probably be the closest analogy because it was handheld and very small. I imagined this to be very small. And then for the playback unit, um, and, and uh, I, it's funny now to, to think about it, but um, I, I became aware that uh, uh, Wozniak and Jobs were introducing their Apple computer board. They were just pushing that out basically to gamers and hobbyists. Uh, and it was a board. And I became interested in it 
At first, not because of, of what it did, but because of the parts they used. Wozniak used the same DRAMs I used in the camera. And I had some trouble getting my DRAMs to work as fast as I needed them to have work. Again, the technical aspect of it. Uh, so I became aware of it by virtue of these DRAM application. And then I thought, well, if, if, if they reconfigured their whole thing and it would work faster and it would do some other things, maybe this could be the playback unit. So I said, this perhaps could be the playback unit. Now you can get in trouble with analogies, as I did. <laughs> um, and so uh, I remember a, I, ne- I remember this distinctly, a young, a guy from a marketing guy. Uh, marketing guys always have the toughest questions. And, and they, he, he said, okay, uh, Sasson, how, how much for that, that calculator? Uh, it was about $400, I said. How much for this board from the California guys? And I said, about six, 700 bucks. So he says, so for $1,100, you can take way worse pictures than an Instamatic fully loaded for $35. Why are we talking about this? Didn't have a good answer. You know, uh, these, were, these, were, these were very valid challenges, you know. Um, I was challenged with uh, the f- whole photo finishing infrastructure, you know, George Eastman, who basically developed consumer photography, uh, really came up with a brilliant business model. Uh, it involved three customer touch points for every photographic experience. The first one, you went and bought the film. And then you went back to the photo store to develop your, bring your developed film to it. Uh, and then a third visit to pick it up and with your prints. Three customer touch points for each experience. Wow. Right. So they have a whole photo photo developing network around that. At a great markup, right? So at the time, Kodak was making, and you tell me if I'm wrong, something like nine hundred percent markup on film. Oh yeah. The, the margin on film was 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 really, really good. Let me just put it that way. Um anybody who's seen the books of that would would, would say this is better than just about any product ever made. Uh, you know, because it was a perfect product. It was a, a big barrier to entry. It was very hard for people to build film, very hard. Uh, only a few handful of companies ever managed to do it successfully. Um, and it was ubiquitous. Everybody used it and they needed it. And so um, so it was very profitable. And so you titled your meetings with them, you know, the presentation for the filmless camera. I called it filmless photography. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was a clever title. I, you know, knowing what I know now, I would have chosen a different one. Um, it, just because it sort of <laughs> puts you, I wasn't really challenging film. I was simply offering it as a alternative approach and it was very distant in the future. You know, I was, I was asked how long would it take for this concept I was demonstrating to them in this conference room before it was a, a realistic consumer possibility. And of course, I didn't know, but I extrapolated to about 15 to 20 years, not knowing if CCD technology would follow Moore's law at all. But, uh, you know, when you're desperate, you make these things. So I was 15 to 20 years, basically a generation or plus. And um, uh, it was going to be a long time. Um, now, that prediction turned out to be not too far off. Uh, first mm-hmm. consumer camera was about 18 years later. Um, but for all the wrong reasons, I had no I had no idea that uh, all of the things that would that would take place between uh, over those next twenty years, but it was my attempt at trying to just give a, a an order of magnitude estimate as to what this thing could do, when it would be available, and what its usefulness could be. We talked about transmitting images over telephone lines, uh, the idea of viewing images right after you took them or reasonably close after you took them. Um, so we had those discussions even in 1976. They were all 
you know, science fiction mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but the the camera, the prototype turned out to be a useful thing. If I had come in and just talked about this, it would have told, had, had a totally different conversation. But you got to understand, when they argued with me, they argued with me while their picture was staring at them from the TV set in the room that I had just taken of them. And so it made it, you know, it's black and white. It was only 10,000 pixels was on TV screen, but it was certainly good enough, certainly recognizable. Um, and I was challenged. I, people came in with all kinds of ideas. People were thinking about this. One, one person came in from the business imaging uh, departments and, uh, he looked at it and he took out a check and he slammed it down on the table. He said, take a picture of that. So I did. And up the picture appeared on the screen and he walks right up to the screen and he said, said two things. He said, not enough resolution. He said for the pet camera, he said, then he looked at the other people in the room and he said, this thing works better than rooms full of equipment I've seen anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, it was a little photographic system and it worked. Okay. No excuses. I could take pictures of whatever they wanted, anywhere they wanted. Um, they weren't great. There were lots of problems. And and certainly it was not anything that was uh, manufacturable. But it got the conversation going uh, at a visceral level uh, with respect to uh, what would happen. So did it feel like a failure to you? Because this has been you know, Kodak not pursuing this technology has been billed as like one of the greatest business failures of all time. <laughs> There's no like top 10 list where this isn't in the list. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a, the wrong characterization of it. Kodak worked on it continuously. In fact, they filed a lot of intellectual property on this. M- most of the fundamental patents, intellectual property patents, on the basis for digital photography, the architectures behind digital cameras and algorithms and things like that are owned by Kodak. Just about every, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of intellectual property activity. And um, I would say just about every digital camera company, every cell phone company uh, has licensed Kodak intellectual property. Because we, you know, it's kind of funny. We knew what the right answer was going to be our marketing and business arms didn't like the answer, but we knew what the right answer was going to be. So a lot of our technical work revolved down that. We knew that instead of revolving around the television set, that digital photography was going to evolve around emerging computers. And that sounds obvious today, but it wasn't necessarily obvious back then because all images were viewed on television sets. But we thought, no, it's going to be computers. And we knew how good it had to be because we knew how good film was and film-based photography. And so we didn't know as much about the solution or the electronics. We didn't have the capability there, but we knew more about the problem that had to be solved than anybody else, than Sony and Canny and, and Canon and those people. So in that sense, we invested heavily and we made it quite an interesting intellectual property trail. And they made a lot of money off the intellectual property eventually. Um, However, we could never come up with a business model that could compete with that of film. And so you could see the challenge. We built, I built a camera with, a, with another researcher named Robert Hills uh, in, in late, late 1980s. Uh, and it was basically uh, 
kind of the first implementation of a self-contained DSLR. It had memory cards and used memory compression. We were the first people to using DCT-based compression, which you know is JPEG today. Mm-hmm. We were using that before it was a standard. We knew that was the right answer for that. We put this together in a camera and we took it to uh, the marketing guys in the late, very late 80s, 1989. It was fully operational. It looked just like a DSLR today, except without a without a screen on the back. And, um, you know, the answer was, we asked them, could you sell it? And they we built six of them. They, they looked nice. They were just hand-built, but they would look nice. And uh, they said, sure, we can, but we won't. If it comes to the expense of one film camera, why would we? Why would we do that? You know, and so we ran into uh, financial business related problems. There were cultural problems as well. Kodak, um, the culture at Kodak was one of image quality, for example. And so you any emerging technology like DSLR has less image quality than film for a long period of time until it catches up. Uh, so it was hard for Kodak to propose something that had worse image quality. But it turns out that the customer didn't care. Right. <laughs> no, the other features of Kodak, of the camera, you know, instant viewing, transmission, stuff like that, overweighed just it being an absolutely magnificent photograph, right? And so the whole nature of photography changed in the 90s when it became, instead of memorializing events, it became a form of casual conversation. We had. So all of that changed. And Kodak wasn't allowed, wasn't prepared to make all of those changes. So I think we missed it. We missed it. Uh, but not for the reasons that people talk about, like we ignored it. We didn't ignore it. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, Steve, that everybody wants to talk about how you invented the digital camera and, you know, the the failure in the 70s. But what it really sounds like, it was the it was the decision in 1989 that was really the, yeah, the big decisions. one we should be talking about. Yeah. Well, I tell you, if you had if you had asked me or any of the people who are working on this, uh, in the late seventies or early eighties, even to the mid eighties, you would you could have had a really good technical discussion as of whether this could ever be. You know, could this ever be? Because the memory requirements were going up. You needed millions and millions of pixels, and digital memory was advancing, but not that fast. Algorithms, computer power, battery power, image compression algorithm, all this stuff. But I would say in nineteen eighty nine and nineteen ninety, that time frame. It became clear to us that you could do it. And if we could do it, other people could do it. And it was just a matter of time. And then the debate was when. Yeah, should when, we? When? When was going to happen? And I, I will tell you, I remember sitting at lunch tables talking to my friends, and I, my bet was around 2000 that that we'd be buying these things at our local Wegmans here in blister packs. That's what I kept telling people. You know, That was my belief that it was going to go. didn't go that fast. But it went pretty close to that. Um, so it, it, it wasn't that we ignored it. It wasn't that we didn't understand it. It was just that we, um, we it was very hard to move from such a profitable and well-established business model that had been instituted and been in place for over 100 years and well-accepted. And there was nothing wrong with it, you know. <laughs> People weren't complaining about right. photography. And to walk away from that, and I remember being asked so many times uh, for different aspects of this, you know, show me the money. Uh, how does it compare to film? And nobody could come up with anything even close to the profitability of film, plus the barrier to entry, 
you know, and all of that kind of thing. Hardly anybody could compete with us with film, you know, that kind of thing. Think of the electronics competition. So, so as you think about, you know, your timeline with digital cameras, where was the point where you were like, oh, that's that's the moment that hurts the most. That's the one that I really identify as the the failure or the thing that didn't work. I became disgusted in 19 when they didn't want to take up ecam. I stopped working in digital cameras. I said, in 1989. Well, in 89, 1990, May 5th, 1990, I shifted over to making digital printers. Because Can think we talk it, about that for a second? Sure. Just like, I just want to talk about the disgust. Okay. <laughs> because, you you know, you, you were on this for 20 years, 10, 10, 15 years. And how did you not get discouraged early on to, to not, you know, how did it take you 15 years to, to finally come to that point? What were you telling yourself the whole time? Well, well, personally, I, I liked working in Kodak because I was surrounded by uh, the smartest people in terms of imaging and, and all kinds of things associated with things I was interested in. So it was a wonderful environment to be in. And, and I was uh, taught so much by the people around me. We were also all on a quest to accomplish a revolution, this digital revolution. It was a big hill to climb. I mean, this was this was this was tough stuff. Uh, technically, uh, manufacturing wise, uh, everything. And, and so that was an exciting adventure. But I would say in the late 80s, when when Ecamm didn't work out, um, I, I will tell you a funny story about Ecamm. We we demonstrated it and they said no. And this was, if you saw this thing, you'd say, well, it looked just like a Nikon today. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was built on a chin-on body, you know. By the way, this was done mainly by Bob Hills, who was a, a master camera designer at Kodak. And uh, he refused to build anything stupid looking like I would build because I'm an electronics guy. What do I know about cameras? And so we we collaborated on this. And this camera looked and acted just like a regular DSLR. It didn't look like a box. Like no, no, one. no. <laughs> uh, actually, it it is in display at the at the Patent Museum uh, at the National Inventors Hall of Fame Patent Museum down at the USPTO right now. That that first ECAM. But uh, what happened here is that uh, I became so discouraged because at that time the technical questions I think were answered. Yes, it could be done, and here's how the architecture. Here's how it would work with memory cards. Here's how you could do burst photography. And the quality was good. Kodak was making the imagers. Kodak was designing and manufacturing the imagers themselves. So we had made significant investment in this. And our marketing guys didn't want to move on it. In other words, it became a business or cultural problem. No, not a technical one. And um, I became discouraged. Bob Hills became discouraged as well. He went back to designing what he called real cameras. And uh, I uh, was thinking about leaving the company, actually. Um, uh, turns out that the space shuttle program was looking for mission specialists at the time. So I applied. It was kind of fun. Um, but anyway, so, but I was, it was the first time I seriously thought about leaving the company just because I saw it was coming. And, you know, I've been doing it for 15 years. I wanted to do something real. I wanted to get out something that impacted the world. And so far, all my work had resulted in experiments and prototypes and demonstrations and trying to convince management to put money into different things, along with a lot of other people. I don't want to make it sound like I was the only person. Um, and and uh, so I I went over to making printers. And I will tell you, since we're talking about innovation today, as much as the digital camera presented obvious challenges to the culture of Kodak. You think printers wouldn't, but they did. 
because uh, we came up with a thermal. This I worked on one of the first thermal printers. Uh, it was called small platen thermal printing, where we put took three passes with a dye ribbon, and you could print a really nice color photograph on a reflective piece of paper. So make a print, basically. And some clever guys took us three years to develop this printer. I was the chief engineer on this thing, so uh, it was a real. I learned a lot doing that. But what happened is somebody came up with an idea. We could make a photographic copier so we could put it into drugstores and people could take in their prints or bring in their digital camera cards that were just starting to come out now. This is like 94, 95. And uh, we could uh, we could make a, co- a photographic copier. And it was it was there was it was it was tabletop. It didn't require a water connection or chemicals. It was all dry. It was fast, about two or three minutes to make a print. And again, pushback. They didn't want to do it. They thought it would disrupt our existing customer base. Wedding photographers would object to have them having a capability out there to make reprints of their prints, that kind of thing. And so the U.S. Uh, Consumer Imaging Division, I was in the meeting when the proposal was made. Hey, we can make a kiosk kind of self-walk-up thing. You could use this thing and make photographs. And I remember they saying, well, maybe we could sell a dozen of these in the United States next year. And I remember this because I had, it was 94 and I had just gotten my first minivan. And I said, I could sell a dozen of these out of my back of my minivan by myself. What's wrong with these people? So uh, it turns out that the uh, region in Australia, uh, they own the, the channel and they were able to do it. And they started exploding with this thing. And then that woke up the rest of the company. There's nothing like somebody else making a profit to cause the other parts of the company to get interested. So they eventually did, and they became a leader in in kiosks. But again, addressing the concept of innovation, another new idea, totally different end of the photographic chain. And this was printing, and this sold consumables. We sold printers and ribbons. So it fit much more with the model that Kodak was used to. And yet there was tremendous resistance. Change is very hard for established companies. Even, even if the profit profitability on thermal dye was, was actually very good. It was very good. Um, and uh, they, they became successful at this. We, I think we have more kiosks in the world now than anybody. But it was a very tough road. And you wouldn't think it would be, but it was. Again, because of the new idea and because how cut new our existing customers may react negatively to some aspect of this new innovation. Uh, so that was the pushback there. So so I guess what I'm saying is I've lived through two fundamental innovations. In both cases, I spent most of my time failing at being able to get it, <laughs> to, get it to, to the market. How did you choose to share these failures? I, I know that you've done a lot of speaking or your lessons learned. Did you Did you take what you learned from both experiences and channel it into your work at Kodak? Or, or did you want to teach other organizations and other people about how to avoid the same fate? Um, I never considered myself an expert on innovation. Um, you know, I, I, I was wrong a lot uh, about things. Um, I think inventors are wrong. I like to say that inventors know more about why things don't work than why they do. Um, because they spend a lot of time trying things that don't work out. 
And so I, I spent a lot of time being wrong. I also underestimated certain developments, the pace of certain developments that were outside my field of influence, you know. Um, so I never felt like I was an expert on that. I, if I'm an expert, I'm an expert at perseverance, maybe. <laughs> but 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 that, that's about it. Uh, so I didn't really, I've never really talked about a lot of this stuff. And do you think the Kodak culture, which we've referenced a couple of times, do you think that they have chosen to learn from the lessons of of the things that we've talked about, or it it's just something that exists in every company that you've seen? I think big companies, especially successful ones that have been successful for a, a period of time, a long period of time, um, keep doing what they know how to do in spite of all the evidence in front of them. <laughs> it wasn't that Kodak didn't know this was coming. It was just hard to figure out a pathway that would allow them to continue. How much of a change do you have to make before you're not the same company anymore? Um, and we valued our corporation. We valued our, our corporate values, our, our infrastructure. We were good at certain things after practicing for 100 years. And all of a sudden, those things weren't terribly important anymore. And that became very difficult. So did they learn from this? I, I I think so. I mean, every company learns. I, I think if presented with such a dramatic discontinuity, any of the big successful companies today would have equally difficult time. I think our management was pretty smart. They got it. I happen to know all of the CEOs personally after when George Fisher came, he was a very different kind of a person. He was the first CEO that ever came from outside of the company. And um, he was uh, very progressive. He got it. But I think he found it difficult to get management to change. And the CEO after him was Dan Karp, a person I actually had known earlier in my career. And he came from inside the company. And he once told me that it was very difficult to get middle managers to, 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 to move beyond you know, where they were. Uh, and then Antonio Perez also had difficulties uh, kind of thing. So it's, it's not that they didn't see it. It was very difficult to change the culture. Do you have any advice for those frustrated innovators or for the next young Steve Sasson who's working on something excited and can't get it moving inside their organization? What do you say to all those people? <laughs> I don't know if I've got good advice for people. Um, I, I, uh, well, first of all, if you have an idea, try to avoid the PR disaster I had with filmless photography. Um, because think about your audience when you're pitching an idea and realize that you may have thought about this idea for a long time, maybe even years, and your audience is seeing it for the first time. And change doesn't come easily, no matter how smart or innovative you think you are. Most companies will endorse innovation, enthusiastically endorse innovation, until it happens to them. And then they slow down. And so be prepared for that. Um, so think about your audience. Use language that they're used to. Try to use the culture as well. Um, I use this example. My first prototype camera, the 75, 76 camera that I demonstrated, I was very excited by the idea of being able to put a thousand images on this tape. I just thought that was the coolest thing. Sounds cool. Yeah, because nobody... They, but you know what I did? I decided to put 30 images. That's how I described it. Halfway between 24 and 36, the two conventional film lengths at the time. Why? 
because I didn't want to have another <laughs> argument about what we would do with that. And it made it more culturally acceptable. The idea of, okay, as a bite-sized number of images before you do something with it. I figured we could have that argument later on, but I actually calculated I could get almost a thousand images on a, on a 300 foot Phillips cassette at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, Try to use your corporate culture wherever you possibly can to make it sort of acceptable um, and um, use words and uh, try to get them to enlist them, use analogies, uh, try to get them on board, even with a little bit, um, get experts to help you. Um, if you're new to new to a field, um, you know, ideas are hard to evaluate, but they evaluate people first. And although technologists think of the idea as everything, the algorithm is everything, the device is everything, they see the device and they look at the person. And most managers are used to evaluating people more than they are ideas. And so what you do is, first of all, think about your presentation and what you're, how you're appealing to them. And second of all, enlist the help of experts that they respect. Bifurcate the problem down into a series of technical challenges and then enlist some help for those technical experts that they will have a tendency to believe more than you. Okay. I was 25 years old. I had zero credibility. Okay. Um, which was good and bad. It was bad in the sense that, you know, nobody was paying attention to me. They didn't know who the hell I was. Um, good in the sense I had no reputation to protect. I, I wasn't afraid to be wrong. I just was pushing the idea. So there's advantages to that. But if you want to go and get an idea more listened to, it's hard to listen to someone who's got no background, no credibility. So enlist other people. And I think the way to do that is to bifurcate your problem into different areas, either marketing challenges or technical challenges or business-related challenges or manufacturing challenges, and then find somebody who's an expert in those areas and somehow get them to believe, okay? Um, and that's has to do with leadership. It has to do with enabling others to believe in your idea, even though you might not have enough data to support it. And then all of a sudden you have a chorus of people with a little bit of a background talking about the possibilities. Not necessarily it's going to happen tomorrow, but I could see if this, like, if this problem would be done away with, you know, like the big problem that you see in this area, if you could just do away with that, oh, then I could see a path forward. Okay, so it's only that problem that stopped. In other words, you turn it from a cloud, a big cloud on the horizon to just one tree that's in your way and then talk about that tree. And then you may or may not be able to do something about it. And just imagine that it's gone and keep working on it. And perseverance, of course. I think you have to persevere. You have to believe in the idea um, uh, that it would happen, you know. Uh, and the thing that kept me going with Kodak was, all the experts I talked to and all the challenges I got, no one could come up with some fundamental law of physics or thermodynamics that said that it couldn't happen. So as long as nobody could do that, I just kept going. Well, you've mentioned several times uh, in this interview that you weren't afraid to be wrong, that you're an expert at failure. And I guess my last question is, do you have any advice for those people who are afraid to be wrong? Like, how do you teach that concept to the people that you're talking to, to your kids, like how do you teach somebody to not be afraid to be wrong? I think it comes from, um, it's not, not bravery or anything. It's, it's uh, curiosity drives you. You know, when you're curious about something, you don't, you don't, you don't uh, question why you're looking at something. 
You know, you, your, your curiosity drives your actions before you're thinking about how other people look at you. The idea that you're going after overwhelms this, uh, uh, this fear of how you look to other people sometimes. And I think inventors tend to be that way. I, I like to joke. That's why inventors are always are the poorest dressers. They don't think about how people look at them. They're always thinking about the idea going forward. And, and it's the idea that's driving them. Right. And, and so, and their curiosity is driving them. When you're really curious about something, you're not thinking about what your hair looks like, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, that's kind of what reinforces you, you know, when I would be up there and people would challenge me and I didn't have answers. I had no answers for these good questions that people were asking. I simply said, that yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> Just like the other questions we have here. It's a good question, you know, um, but I didn't take it as a reflection on me. And so therefore I didn't necessarily worry about that uh, so much. So I think it's sort of driven by sort of your natural curiosity you have to listen to these questions. They're really important. I was never the smartest person in the room in my whole career at Kodak. There's always somebody in that room that was smarter than me about whatever topic we were talking about. There always was. I got to say, you sound really, really smart, Steve. Well, no, they, because they, there were always experts there. And, and they're really, they got good observations. But remember, an expert is a person who knows the limits of the existing idea. And sometimes when you're innovating, you're saying, well, okay, I don't know where the edge of the pie is, but I know that three inches beyond the pie, this could exist. And the expert only spends their time thinking about what's at the edge of the pie, you know? And so I think you sort of have a freedom because you're, you're not an expert. <laughs> and so if you're not an expert, you don't have an expert reputation to protect. And therefore you can propose some wild things. And sometimes experts, you'll find that, They've got imaginations too, just sometimes they're a little bit more reluctant to sign up. But it's up to you to try to get them to believe in the idea. And I would say reduce it down to that single tree and then imagine you can get around the tree. And then all of a sudden you'll find that these people are very innovative. The people at Kodak were very innovative. Uh, just tons of really smart people inventing all aspects in terms of digital photography and digital printing. Um, and they were always doing that. You know, and so I was pleased to be among them. And I learned everything I know about photography came from my my friends and colleagues at Kodak for 35 years. Um, I wouldn't worry so much about how I was viewed by other people. I just worried about the idea so much. And I think that's what maybe drives innovators. So so let your curiosity carry you through, I guess. Maybe that's a short way to answer the question. You know, the sign up for the show, Steve, is curiosity is your superpower. So is, like, is, is that, that a, the sign up? Really? Yeah. Every every show ends with that. I did not know that, but I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that worked out. Now you can do the sign up. <laughs> you could you could point right at the screen and and say it, you know, curiosity is a, is is the superpower. Well, it is kind of a superpower. It just sort of insulates you from worrying about how you're viewed, you know. I didn't even know about all the benefits to your hair and your wardrobe, but now, well, now I'm even more fired <laughs> up about it. Well, I always say it's a. You know, sometimes my wife, uh, we might be going out somewhere and she said, oh, you're wearing that shirt or you're taking that picture or something like that. And and I, I, it never occurs to me so much about what I look like. And so I need her to, to, to keep me organized. And I said, well, this is this carefully disheveled view that I've cultivated <laughs> over years. You know, you, you can't just let it go. It's your brand. You know, kind of thing. That's my brand. Yeah. I never knew I had a brand until I went to PR school. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Steve, thank you so much for your time. This is awesome. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks. I enjoyed talking about it and uh, and good luck on your podcast. Thank and you. Your, uh, and curiosity is your superpower. I like that one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a brand new format for the show this season. So please reach out to me at Diana Kander on most social media platforms and let me know what you thought of it, what we could be doing better, whether you want more of these. And please check out the Facebook group, Professional AF Podcast Insiders, where you can have deeper conversations with nearly a thousand people who have listened and enjoyed the show and want to dive deeper into the topics of each episode. I am Diana Kander, as always, reminding you that curiosity is your superpower, just like Steve did. I hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>